Good morning. Happy 4th of July. Or 5th of July. 5th of July? 5th of July. Well, welcome to Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. My name is Pastor Ian. I'm the youth and family pastor here. If you're new with us, thank you so much for joining us. If you're not new with us, also thank you for joining us. But if you're new, thank you for joining us. Um, One quick announcement that we have this morning. Um, Next week, on Saturday, there's going to be men's breakfast, 7.30. If you want to come, there will be food. There will be some fellowship. Um, Bob is going through Romans 6, right, Bob? Romans 6. So um, if you guys want to join us, that would be awesome. Um, And with that, I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. We're going to stand up and sing some songs this morning. If you are too hot, please feel free to sit down. We don't want anybody passing out this morning. We know it's warm in here. So we have the lights off, the fans going. We'll do our best. But um, let's worship this morning.
Well, good morning. Great to be here with you this morning. So, right now is normally a time in our service where we would you know, collect an offering, right, to give back to God what He has freely given to us. But we're obviously not passing plates during this season, and so there is a tray in the back if you want to drop an offering on the way out. You can do that. Otherwise, you can mail a check to the church or give online or via text. Right? But if you're visiting this morning, by all means, don't feel any obligation to give. Like We want this service to be a gift to you. But just that's how we're handling that these days. With that, let's enter a time of prayer together this morning. Father, we, we thank you that we have the opportunity to, to gather here and to worship you in this place that we, you have given us the freedom, you've given us the opportunity to gather and to be your people and to pour out praise to you, especially as we gather here on this 4th of July weekend and we reflect on what a gift so much of living in this country is, what, how many freedoms we have, how much opportunity we have to gather as your people without fear, persecution, that we, we thank you for the freedoms, we thank you for the chance to gather and praise you. Brother, we, we pray for those people in our church family and people we know who are struggling with sickness, with pain, with disease, and we pray that you would bring healing and peace where they're needed for those people. We pray that as we gather this morning, as we sing praise to you, as we hear your word and we reflect on how it applies to our own lives, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, that we would be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus. Pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue worshiping, and again, if you need to sit down, please do. We know it's hot in here. We have a set of three songs, so if that kind of gives you a gauge of how long you'll be standing, um, we're going to start another set of worship. One, two, three.
next song we're going to sing is King of My Heart. And I guess when I, I picked the songs this week, but when I picked this one out, I didn't really sit and read the lyrics until, you know, just a little bit later. And I was like, man, this is so applicable to where we're all at right now. I mean, there's so much hurt right now in our country and in our communities and personally in our families. And this song really just claims, where do we go to when we're hurt? It's, I'll let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, oh, he is my song. There's another line in here that just caught me this morning. Um, It says, let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins. You know, he's like, he is the one that's driving what we do and the place where we run to. So as we're singing this, just claim those words. You know, claim them as what they need to be and just pray them. We're going to sing the choruses, you are good. And it's repetitive and we sing it over and over, but... It is true. I mean, like, how else can we say it? But you are good, God. No matter what what we have in front of us, you are good.
You're going to be seated. And again, it's great to be with you this morning. If you're visiting or just haven't been around for the last couple of weeks, my name's Tim. I'm the pastor here. I've been pastor for all of two weeks, so if you don't recognize me, that's why. And as we prepare to move up here, everyone warned me, like, you know, it gets really cold up there, right? And I would take a little bit of that right now, right? Like, a little warm, a little toasty, but I'm glad to be here, excited to be with you this morning. So you may remember, some of you may remember, the movie from a few years back called Catch Me If You Can. And it told the story of a man named Frank Abingdale. And one of the things that made that movie kind of remarkable was that it was based on a true story. But not based on a true story like Pocahontas is based on a true story, but like actually based on a pretty accurate depiction of what Frank Abingdale's life was like, which is what makes it so hard to believe. If Frank Abingdale was this prolific check forger and con man and imposter. Right? And throughout his time as an imposter, like, Abingdale posed at various times as a pilot, as a lawyer, and as a doctor. Right? Despite having no training in any of those fields. And if you haven't seen the movie, right, you might wonder, like, how can you pose as a doctor or a lawyer or a pilot without any training? Right? Like, there are some jobs you can kind of fake it until you make it. But like doctor and lawyer and pilot are not those kinds of jobs. Like I don't want somebody faking it until they make it flying my plane. And yet, Abingdale did it. Because he used a variety of clever techniques to avoid actually doing any real work. As a pilot, he was never actually employed by the airline. He just had forged pilot credentials that allowed him to, like, get all the perks of being a pilot, namely free flights and free hotel rooms and free meals without actually ever flying the plane. And as a doctor, right, he, he had a bunch of interns under him who just did all the work for him. And so by and large, Abingdale was able to pose as a pilot or a lawyer or a doctor without being detected as a fraud. But he did have a few close calls. One time on a flight, the pilot who was actually assigned to fly the plane asked him to take the controls for a few minutes while he went and mingled with the passengers. And Abagnale says, right, recounting that story, like, I promptly put that giant jet on autopilot and hoped the gadget worked because I couldn't fly a kite. And once at the doctor, a nurse urged him to respond quickly to a blue baby situation. Which means, like, there's a baby who is having a hard time breathing. But Abingdale thought the doctor was joking. Or the nurse is joking. And so he replied by saying, I'll be right along, but I have to check on that green baby in room 609 first. And then he went on his way. He didn't understand the urgency of the situation. And so the bewildered nurse called on one of the interns who eventually saved the baby's life. And it was only later that Abingdale understood the significance of the situation. And he was reflecting on that, and he said, That incident shook me. I realized I was playing a role that had reached its limits. I've been lucky so far, but I suddenly knew some child could die as a result of my impersonation. As good as Abingdale was at being an imposter, if he pretended to be the same person for long enough, there would always come a time when he would be put to the test and he would need to prove that he was who he claimed to be. And the same thing is true for us in our Christian walk. If we claim to be a Christian for long enough, eventually our faith will be tested and we will either be shown to be a true Christian or we will be exposed as an imposter and a fraud. And there are many people who will claim to be a Christian despite the fact that they know they aren't one. Right? Either because it makes their family happy, or because right, they like the people at church, or maybe because it helped them advance in their career. 
although admittedly that's happening less and less in our culture now. But there are people who will claim to be a Christian knowing they aren't. But there are also people who genuinely believe they are Christians, but in fact they aren't. In Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that verse ought to stop us short. We ought to pause and read that verse and think, like, Am I sure? Like, am I sure I'm going to enter the kingdom of heaven? And I, I, I think I believe Jesus is Lord, but how can I be sure I will enter the kingdom of heaven if that verse is true? How can I be assured that I will enter the kingdom of heaven? Like, how can I know that I'm not an imposter? And answering that question is what much of the book of 1 John is about. So we've been going through 1 John the last few weeks, and the first chapter of this book, John laid out two things that are essential to being a Christian. Namely, right, well, that you know who Jesus is and that you confess your sins. And on the rest of this book, John's going to give us several tests, several ways to know that we are Christians. And in fact, at the end of the book, John writes kind of one of his purpose statements for why he wrote this book. And he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So one of John's purposes in writing this letter is to assure his readers, that they have eternal life. In fact, we're going to call this series through for John, I'm going to call it Assured. Because throughout the book of John, he's going to tell us things that if they are true of us, are evidence that we are Christians, that are ways that we can feel assured that we truly know who Jesus is and that we are Christians. So with that preamble out of the way, let's jump into today's passage. So we're going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-11. through 11. This is what it says. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am writing you a new command. I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So John gives us a clear statement of his main idea right off the bat in this passage when he says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. I already rephrase that slightly, right? Our actions reveal if we know God. Our actions reveal if we know God. How we act reflects whether we know God and therefore whether we will have eternal life. But we need to be careful. Because John's exact words are important. John says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Not, we come to know him by keeping his commands. Like, our actions reveal if we know God. Right? Our actions don't reveal or tell us how to get to know God. It can be so easy to get those things just a little bit twisted and start to think that John is saying that what he said is evidence of our salvation is the way we earn our salvation. I don't know about you, but even though in my head I know like, I'm saved by grace alone in Christ alone, like, like, but like, I know I can't earn my salvation. I know it all depends on Jesus. And yet I often constantly feel prone to trying to do something to earn God's favor and to please God and to earn my way into heaven. And we 
we're all just like we're a legalistic creature by habit. But this verse tells us that like, our actions are evidence of something that's already true of us. And so we need to be on guard as we go through this passage to remember that what John gives us here are tests to prove that our faith is real and they're not ways to earn God's salvation. So the rest of the passage, John gives us three actions that are evidence that we know God. Three actions that if these things are true of us, mean that you can be assured that you have eternal life. And the three actions that John tells us are obeying God, imitating Jesus, and loving one another. So the first of these is that we obey God. In verses 4 and 5, John writes, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God truly is made complete in them. John says, you can say you love God all day. You can claim to be a Christian until you're blue in the face. But John says, if you don't obey God and do what he commands, you are lying. But here's where things get a little bit confusing. Last week, we read chapter 1, verse 8, which is just like five verses before this. And, we, and there we read, like, if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So like, claiming to be without sin is lying, but then not obeying God while claiming to know Him is lying. Like, how can both of those things be true? Like, clearly, John doesn't expect... 100% obedience is evidence that we know God. If he did, none of us would have any hope of ever being able to claim or be assured that we truly know God. Instead, what John seems to be looking for here is a general heart bent, a general attitude inclined towards wanting to obey God. So if we examine our lives and we find ourselves wrestling with the question of, like, am I really a Christian? Which I think, if we're honest, like we all wrestle with that question from time to time. The question we should be asking ourselves is, like, do I find in myself a desire to obey God? Not that I'll always do it perfectly, right, but is there a desire in my heart to obey God? Right. Or to look at it from the other side. Like, when I do sin, if my first reaction to, like, look around and see if I got away with it, and if I did, cool. Or if my first reaction to feel broken over my sin and to repent. If my first reaction to confess or to, to just hope I got away with it and move on. So before I started here, I was first a fifth grade teacher and then a children pastor at a church in Minnesota. And one of the questions I often wrestle with in both of those roles was like, how can parents know, how should parents know like, if their children are really trusting Jesus? Right? Or if they're just coming to church and saying the right words? Like, how, do you, how can you tell when a kid has truly accepted Jesus and isn't just saying what they know they're supposed to say? And for me, like, one of the indicators I looked for was, like, does the child feel a true brokenness over sin? Do they understand that their sin is a big deal and that they don't want to sin, right? that they feel broken over their sin? Which was interesting because at the school I taught at down in Kentucky, right, almost every student there would tell you they're a Christian. Every, almost every student there, their parents would tell you they're a Christian. And yet, as I taught them as fifth graders, let me tell you, many of them didn't feel any brokenness over their sin. Like, many of them did not care in the least that they were sinning unless they got to, had to stay in from recess. They didn't care about their sin. And so that made me wonder, like, are we sure? Like, it's not my place, right? That's a conversation for the kids and the parents. But, like, in my own mind, I was wondering, like, how can we know that these kids are Christians? So if we genuinely know and believe in Jesus as our Savior, our lives will be marked by a desire to obey Him and a brokenness over our own sin when we fail. 
But the issue goes deeper than that. It's one thing to obey God outwardly, but it's another thing altogether to do it with the right motivations. And that brings us to the second action that John says reveals whether we know God. And that is if we imitate Jesus. In verses 5 and 6, John writes, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, at first, obeying God and imitating Jesus may seem like more or less the same thing. Didn't Jesus obey God perfectly? So if I imitate him, doesn't that just mean that I'm obeying God? Well, yes and no. Because in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others or to be seen by them. Then he goes on to give three examples of righteous acts, things that look like they're obeying God, but are done in a wrong way. First, he says, When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and on the streets to be honored by others. And then he says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And then he says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Giving to the needy, and praying, fasting, those are all good things. Those are all ways that we obey God. But Jesus isn't primarily concerned with whether we obey God outwardly. Jesus is far more concerned with what is going on in our heart, with what the motivation behind our actions are, not just the actions themselves. And of course, Jesus' life is a perfect example of how he calls us to live. Jesus didn't just obey God outwardly. His actions, his motives were constantly to honor God and glorify him with his actions. So if we're imitating Jesus the way John calls us to here, I thought our motivations ought to reflect that as well. If we truly know God, if we grasp what Jesus did for us on the cross, like our motivations will be transformed. No longer will our desire to be to bring glory to our own name and to make ourselves look good. If we truly understand that we are hopeless sinners until God came to rescue us in Jesus, then our motivations will be to bring Him glory and praise and honor. And again, we won't be perfect at this. Sin is still at work in us and will at times cause us to act in ways that are self-centered, self-glorifying and proud. But as we examine our lives to see if we truly know God, one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, am I motivated by a desire to please and glorify God with my actions? Or am I more concerned with how my actions make me look to other people? If we're living in God, then we will imitate Jesus. We will live as Jesus lived. Seeking God's glory rather than earthly praise. And the third action John says that reveals whether we know God is whether we love one another. In verses 9 through 11, John writes, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So one thing you'll notice is that John likes to change his metaphors a little bit for being a Christian. He started out with talking about knowing God. Now he talks about living in the light. But he he means the same thing. Knowing God, living in the light, living in God. John uses all these phrases for believing in Jesus. Being a Christian or for having eternal life. And here John says that anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. Anyone who loves fellow Christians can be assured that they are a Christian. But of course, the reverse is also true. If you hate Christians, if you 
feel hate in your heart for a fellow brother or sister, then you are still in darkness. Then you aren't a Christian, John says. Again, notice that John doesn't leave any gray area here. Either you love the brothers and sisters, or you hate them. He has no category for like, eh, most Christians are okay most of the time. He doesn't have that kind of category. Either you know God, and God's love for you enables and equips you to love others, or you don't know God. And in that case, you may treat other people well, because it benefits you, but ultimately you will not love them with the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus called us to. In John 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down our lives, our life for one's friends. That's the kind of love that John said Christians should exhibit for one another. A love that sacrifices for one another to the point of death, if it should come to that. The true Christian we marked by a desire to love their fellow Christians, by putting their needs before their own, by considering others more important than themselves. And again, not that we'll be perfect at it. Like I know I'm not perfect at it. Like One place I've felt a little bit of personal conviction about this as I prepared for the sermon this week is, again, regarding my own personal response to, to COVID and especially the question of like when and where to wear a mask. Now, I, I know this is a contentious issue. Like, let me say up front, like, I think this is a, a, conscious, a conscience issue. Right? And like, each of us needs to wrestle with our own response for ourselves. Like, I'm not here telling you what to do or what the proper response for you is. I'm just saying like, this is what I've felt God working in my heart as I prepared for this sermon. So the question of wearing a mask. I, I hate wearing a mask. It's just, for one, it like, oh, I fogged up my glasses. Like, like right before we moved, like I visited the eye doctor. And, like, they required all the patients coming in to wear a mask the whole time. And so I'm there getting checked in, and they're doing the initial exam where they have you read the chart with your current glasses on and cover one eye and blah, blah, blah. Right? But, like, so they gave me the thing, and, like, my glasses are all fogged up. Like, I can't read the chart. It doesn't matter how good my glasses are. And so, like, I'd take my glasses off, and I'd shake them out a little bit, and I'd, like, put them back on, and I'd put the thing out to my eye, and I'd get, like, two letters in, and they'd be fogged up again. And, like, so it took forever, and it was no fun. I just don't like wearing a mask. Like, never mind the fogging up. Like, I just feel, I feel weird. I feel strange wearing a mask. Trying to carry on a conversation with someone without being able to read facial cues is, Awkward and strange and hard. And especially, like, my first two weeks here, like, as I've been meeting many of you, like, I, I was self-conscious that wearing a mask would maybe, like, skew your first impression of me, like, maybe it would seem awkward and, like, it would be a bad first impression. And so I was just worried about that. But as I've kind of studied and reflected this week, like, I've become convinced that my own motivations for not wearing a mask when I'm not mingling, especially after the service with you, like, has not been loving. I realize, like, for me, like, it doesn't matter how big of a threat I personally think COVID is. It doesn't matter how effective I necessarily think masks are. Right? What matters is that some brothers and sisters would feel safer, would feel more comfortable, would feel more loved if I chose to wear a mask, and yet I chose not to, despite the fact that wearing a mask cost me nothing more than like, some foggy glasses and a little bit of uncomfortableness. It can be so easy to argue about like, how big of a threat COVID is, and it can be easy to like, say, like, just do what makes you feel comfortable. Like, if you feel safer wearing a mask, then wear one. But if I don't feel like I need to wear one for my safety, then I shouldn't have to wear one. But the problem with that, I realize from my own heart, is that like, from everything I read, masks do a better job protecting the person like you're talking to than actually protecting you from getting COVID yourself. And so my action of not wearing a mask was the very action that would make somebody else potentially feel uncomfortable. And that was not very loving of me in my own motivations. Now again, I know there are a wide variety of opinions on COVID and masks, and I'm not saying you should definitely be where I am on wearing a mask. I'm not telling you what to think. 
Like, all I'm saying is that as I've thought through my motives in light of this verse, I realize my motives were not rooted in love for one another. And for that, I'm sorry. Right? Whatever your response to COVID has been, there are, there are no doubt faithful Christians who think vastly different things than you. But love must mean being able to disagree without thinking less of another person. My encouragement to us would be to examine our heart and to consider whether our reaction to those Christians who think differently on this issue than us is rooted in love or is rooted in judgment. Loving one another is one of the ways that John says we can be assured that we know God. So my hope and my prayer is that we would love one another well. There's a clear invitation in this passage from John. John's encouraging us to examine our lives and consider whether we truly know God by asking ourselves, do I obey God, do I imitate Jesus, and do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? And again, we won't do any of these things perfectly. But as we examine our life, like, is the general pattern of my life like a desire to do these things? And if not, like, if you find, like, I don't really care if I'm obeying God, like, I just care how I look. Right? Well, first, like, that's commendable that you have that kind of honesty in examining your life. So, okay, that's commendable. But if, that, if you feel that in you, like, I just don't feel a desire to honor God, to obey God, to imitate Jesus, to love others, I just don't feel it. Right? The answer is not to, to just try harder to do these things. The answer is not just work hard to obey God. We'll never succeed in our own self-effort. If you examine your life and you find you don't have a desire to love God or to imitate Jesus or to love others, right? the first step, John says, is that we know God. And let's start by believing that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for all the times we failed to obey God and imitate Jesus. And then, like, and then confessing your sins and trusting that because Jesus died on the cross, your sins are forgiven if you believe Him. Only when you know God, only when we understand that Jesus did what, we, what Jesus did for us on the cross, only when we know that we're forgiven, that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and equips us, will we be able to live the life that John is laying out in this passage. And so if that's you, no matter how long you've been coming to church, no matter how long you may have thought you've been a Christian, like if you just feel like, I don't pass these tests that John's laying out, but my desire, my urging to you is to turn to Jesus. But for most of us sitting in this room, right, those of us who do know God, right, this verse, this passage is not intended to be a guilt trip. It's not intended to be a way to motivate us to do a better job of obeying God or imitating Jesus or loving others. John's hope in this passage is to assure us that we have eternal life. But the main takeaway from this passage, for most of us, should not be that I need to try harder. But that, to do these things, but rather, like, the main takeaway should be, like, a peaceful assurance that we truly do know God. Peaceful assurance that we truly do have eternal life. Many of us will... Many of you will examine your life and you'll be able to say with honesty, yes, I do want to obey God. Yes, I do want to imitate Jesus. Yes, I do desire to love my brothers and sisters. I don't do any of these things perfectly, but I do desire to do them. If that's you, this passage should be a passive, a passage of assurance and peace. You don't need to doubt if you know God. You don't need to question whether you will experience eternal life. You don't need to wonder if you're an imposter. John is writing to assure you that you do know God, and he invites you to rest in that assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our salvation, that our relationship with you does not depend on our being able to meet a certain standard, but that it depends on our trust 
in Jesus and knowing you because of the work Jesus did on the cross. God, I pray that you would, you would assure us of that, that those of us here who do know you would not wrestle and struggle with questions of doubt. And if there are those of us here who are struggling with those questions, that we would hear your word to us in this passage, that we would examine our lives, that we would feel our desire to obey you and to imitate Jesus and to love others, that we would be assured in light of those things that we truly know you, that we will one day experience eternal life with you. We look forward to that day, God, when there is no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, when you come to bring the new heavens and the new earth and to make all things good. We look forward to that day when we can celebrate with each other, we can worship you face to face because of what you did for us in Jesus. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we leave this morning, may you go in the peace and the assurance that the God who came to save you from your sins assures you that you do know him, that he has taken care of all those sins. You're dismissed.